Hi, and welcome to The Signal. I'm Isabel Buckmaster. And I'm Josefa Cameron from the Audio Workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. Thanks for joining us. Coming up on the show... We see a lot of portrayal of TV and movies that can be quite frightening. Learn about a mental health treatment hidden under clouds of stigma. I feel so mad about it and I feel so angry on behalf of all the other women. It's just, it feels insurmountable to navigate. Hear from a young mom forced to figure out the legal system on her own. And... It just took off, you know, really bigger than I ever imagined it would. Get a closer look at the candy store's satisfying Halifax's taste for something a little different. This is The Signal. We begin with a new mental health treatment that uses magnetic stimulation to permanently change your brain. But stereotypes may be discouraging people from trying it. Isabel Buckmaster spoke with experts about our TMS. What would it take for you to rewire your brain? Two Nova Scotian hospitals are now offering free public access to repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulations, or RTMS. It's a mental health procedure that sends short magnetic pulses to shock the brain. Uh, TMS is a, is a less invasive form of neural modulation whereby we use magnetic pulses to either inhibit or stimulate parts of the cortex of the, of the brain. Dr. Sam Hassan is a member of staff at an RTMS clinic in Dartmouth. He began working with magnetic stimulation in the UK. There, stigma from electroshock therapy is so strong that it's created fear around magnetic stimulation. So our approach is, is multifaceted. So one is obviously educating the public and our colleagues and combating stigma. Back in England, the treatment is very stigmatized, so very few patients benefit from it, whereas here, you know, it's people are more accepting of it. Professor Alan Abbas, director of the Center for Emotions and Health at Dalhousie University, said in a statement over email that negative stereotypes can be harmful to patients. Another expert said that it can be hard for patients to only see the worst-case scenario in the media. RTMS is nothing like ECT. We see a lot of portrayal of ECT in TV and movies that can be quite frightening. The, the reality is that um, for, to the mental health professionals I speak to and to people who have received ECT for whom it has been effective, it is game-changing and positive. Mary Deacon is the chair of Bell Let's Talk, a global mental health foundation. She says that the organization believes it's important to consider alternative or holistic options like magnetic stimulation. We do fund traditional um what might be considered traditional mental health programming, but we also fund innovation. For professionals, the treatments are practiced, albeit on a case-by-case basis. For the public, the treatment remains hidden under a blanket of stigma left behind from films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975 and Shine in 1996. John Boylan, a senior manager at Bell, hopes the new facilities will speak louder than the stigma. Because they now offer it, they're able to talk about it more and make more people aware about the availability of this treatment, which is also very positive. For The Signal, I'm Isabel Buckmaster, Halifax. Now to the story of a woman who says she's navigating the legal system all by herself. She says that legal aid in Nova Scotia has left her when she needs them the most. Josepha Cameron met her just before her day in divorce court. 
Those are the sounds of a busy household in Dartmouth. JB is a young mother of two, trying to divorce her husband, who she says is abusive. We are withholding JB's name because of the ongoing court case. She says the legal system is difficult to navigate without financial support. I feel so mad about it and I feel so angry on behalf of all the other women. It's just, it feels insurmountable to navigate. JB had a lawyer, but was forced to let her go because she couldn't afford to pay. She qualified for legal aid at first, but later they cut her off because she's initiating the divorce. What is the point of legal aid if it's not there to help you when you need it? JB says every time her husband takes her to court, she's forced to represent herself and pay out of pocket for legal advice. I don't know what you do. Like, I can't figure it out what to do at this point. Like, I just have to, you know, hope for the best. JB says her husband forced her and her sons out of their home. For a time, they didn't have a place to live until her mother took them in. She says if she realized how hard it was to leave her abuser, she might have stayed with him. I don't know how low you need to be to actually get help for people to help you. What needs to happen? Do you need, do you need to be on the street? Do I need to have a black eye? What, what is it? Why don't people believe women when we talk about these things that happen to us? I know I'm not the only one. Charlene Moore is with Legal Aid Nova Scotia. She says there are plans for people like JB, but they are on hold. Moore says Legal Aid is organizing an online workshop for people who are representing themselves in court. You know, it would be fantastic if we had the resources in place to have, a, you know, a navigator at court, family court mm-hmm. for people who have experienced violence. Um, we, if we had that, it would be fantastic. We don't have it mm-hmm. right now. But JB says she can't wait and needs help now and says every time something happens related to her son's life, her husband takes her to court. I think it sucks that the system is not set up to protect women. It really makes me want to like go to law school and like Aaron Brockovich this. So that one day she can represent people like herself. Josefa Cameron, The Signal, Chibuktuk, Halifax. Now to the story of a man with big love for small spaces. He owns a tiny home, an up-and-coming trend across Canada because of their small carbon footprint and low price tag. Marianne McClarty has the latest on why less really is more. Allison Churchill's tiny home sits on a corner lot in a neighborhood in Yarmouth. It took him two years to build it, and he's been living there for three months. He says it's about the size of a small garage workshop, 12 feet by 16 feet and about 20 feet tall. I think you have to be very realistic about the space and what you can put in the space and be kind of true to yourself about what's important and what isn't important. Churchill loves to cook and watch nature, so he made sure to save room for a full-size stove and large windows. He says he used pine wood and kept his paint colors light and airy, so he never gets claustrophobic. His full-size patio helps too. I have no regrets. Uh, It's very comfortable in here and uh, I love it. The retired graphic designer says he's always had a passion for woodworking, but affordability was the main reason he built his tiny home. real sense of freedom when you you build something it's paid for and you live in it and now it's mine right i can live here as long as i want i don't have to pay a landlord and there's no rent increases rent increases that have left many searching for an affordable place to live jesse hannah wrote a book about tiny homes in nova scotia she says they could be a creative solution for the province's housing crisis ultimately even though the cost up front might be 
high um, because you know you still need to build the space um, once you're living in a tiny home the costs to live in that space are quite low and so it really is affordable housing even more so she says municipalities could help offset initial building costs Halifax City Councillor Way Mason says affordable tiny homes could soon be popping up in the city. HRM uh, agrees that tiny homes are a key uh, piece, one of the many uh, pieces of uh, dealing with the affordable housing crisis. He says the city plans to allow tiny homes to be clustered together in designated zones. Mason says even the most expensive tiny homes would cost as little as $40,000. This is a good solution, we think. For The Signal, I'm Marianne McClarty. Now let's hear from a local artist. Ruby Turner is an exchange student from the UK who's studying at Dalhousie. Here's Turner's new single, If You'd Asked. Start another heart attack Lying through your teeth Start another petty fight Crying through your sheets but if you danced, I would have stayed. Now I'm walking away, walking, walking away. It must have been something you didn't say. Now I'm walking away, walking, walking away. single by Dalhousie music student Ruby Turner. Find her on Spotify. You're listening to The Signal on CKDU 88.1 FM. I'm Josepha Cameron. And I'm Ms. Bobakmaster. You can also catch us on SoundCloud coming up on the show. We need to do this work, otherwise things would go off the rails quickly. Josepha Cameron sits down with the founder of the Halifax Examiner, Tim Bousquet, to chat about the importance of adversarial reporting. And you have heard of Dunkaroos. Let's try this sour gummy version. Stores selling rare candy are popping up all over Halifax. Find out how some are using TikTok to keep up with viral snack trends. Also, yeah. stuff that nobody's going to want in that way. It comes with me and gets to live again instead of going to the landfill. Learn how an entrepreneur is fighting textile waste one stitch at a time. That's later on The Signal. But first, a conversation about holding powerful people to account by supporting local journalism. Tim Bousquet is the founder, editor, and publisher of the Halifax Examiner. He spoke to me about why he thinks local media is vital to generating change. Why did you decide to create the Halifax Examiner? Well, I was working for... The Coast, another uh, media outlet. And, um, y- you know, it, it was 
time to move on. Just I had grown past what the coast was willing to have me do, and I was looking to to do something else. And um, I I saw the the niche here in Halifax for uh, independent online only publication. So okay. I jumped at it. And what is the kind of reporting done at the Examiner? Well, you know, we call it an adversarial news outlet, meaning that we call power into into account. Um, we do a lot of investigative work, um, following Freedom of Information Act requests, and and otherwise getting kind of deeper into stories than the typical day to day flow of most media outlets. Why do you think that kind of reporting is uh, important? Well, it, it's essential. You know, we, we have these very powerful uh, organizations in society, government, businesses that control every aspect of our lives for better and worse. And, and just in terms of, of freedom and, and, you know, holding them to account, we, we, we need to do this work. Otherwise, things would go off the rails quickly. Who do you think benefits the most from investigative reporting? Well, hopefully society generally. You know, I I think beyond the specifics of any one story, I think that this kind of work can help educate the public about how power works and and about how corruption can enter into systems and, and just just we need to to always be vigilant in keeping things on the up and up. And what story, like looking back at your career, what story are you most proud of? Uh, well, I, I, I guess the story that uh, brings me here to Kings today is is the story on the wrongful conviction of Glenn Assoon. And what I'm proud about that story isn't just telling his story, but I think that if I was successful, it was telling the story of a segment of our society that we don't often talk about, which is this underclass of poverty. And in, in this specific instance, it's it's mostly uh, white poverty in, in the Dartmouth area. People who, you know, Glenn had dropped out of school in grade six, sex workers who no, nobody much wants to, to deal with them as full people. And mm-hmm. I, I think I, I showed that these are, are not one or two dimensional people, but they're they're complex people in their own right who are worth considering. And they've been left behind by society. And, and I hope I was successful at that. Mm-hmm. That's tough reporting. <laughs> like what kind of advice would you give to students who that type of reporting might be a little bit intimidating to them? Yeah, I mean, just remember that everyone's a person. Even the best of us have done bad things and the worst of us have done good things. People are complex and don't ever assume that someone is who you think they are. Everyone has a story. Everyone has complexities. Everyone has competing interests. Um, and it's it's worth um, valuing the, the full person. To move back to the Halifax Examiner as a news <coughs> outlet, how is it founded? Well, we're subscriber-supported 100%. So, well, the bulk of it is subscriber-supported, so mm-hmm. uh, 95% of it. People paying $5, $10 a month to buy a subscription, $100 a year. And um, we have enough of those to hire some reporters. And mm-hmm. there's a little bit of extra funding. We sell some swag. Um, that's less than two percent of our income. Um, uh, we've gotten the government subsidy money 
but that hasn't really kicked in. It will next year. And we've gotten a, a small grant through the Google News Initiative, but those are really tiny amounts uh, of money in the scheme of things. Uh, you know, we're we're now at a at a, a half million dollar annual operation, and four twenty of that, something you know, four hundred twenty thousand of that mm-hmm. comes from uh, subscriptions. Okay. So. And is there, in Halifax, is there enough of an appetite for this kind of investigative research, investigative journalism to sustain the Halifax Examiner? Well, I sure hope so. I mean, mm-hmm. we're seven years old, and we've been growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, in the last two years, we've doubled the size of the Examiner. Uh, I think people are understanding uh, the value of it. The pandemic has kind of brought that into Mm-hmm. Uh, stark relief for people. They value the work we do around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully they will stick around after the pandemic. And you mentioned that you want to expand into New Brunswick. Is yeah. that something you see happening in the future soon? Uh, I mean, we'll see. I, right now, the biggest impediment to it is my time. We more or less have the, the money to make it happen. I keep putting off these trips. Uh, you know, I'm going to spend a month in, in New Brunswick to to meet people and talk with people, I keep putting it off because the the pandemic keep, keeps exploding, and, and uh, I haven't been able to do that. Um, hopefully in the spring I'll be able to do that and have a better sense for what the opportunities and challenges are in New Brunswick. Uh, we'll be talking to people about potentially hiring them. Um, you know, doing some exploratory work uh, turns out at the tail end of that it, that it seems likely, that it seems like a, a venture that could work, then mm-hmm. um, then I'll do it. Right. Are your wages comparative for your reporters? Is Do you think that, um, you know, students graduating are pulled to that? Well, I hope <laughs> Will so. Will be pulled to it? Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, basically, uh, we started on a, um, uh all freelance operation, but uh, now... I have five full-time reporters, and you know we start people at fifty thousand uh, a year, um, and I think that's competitive in this market. Yeah, definitely. Um, or I hope it is anyway. And um, you know, I'd, I'd like to do even better than that. You know, it just depends on how successful we are. And is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? Well, support local journalism. It doesn't have to be the Halifax Examiner, but subscribe to something. Yeah. I agree. Okay, thank you. That was Tim Bousquet. He is the editor and publisher of the Halifax Examiner, a news outlet that he also founded. Thank you for taking the time to do this. It's good to be here. Textile waste is a growing concern as old clothes pack landfills. A Fall River entrepreneur has created a unique way to make other people's trash someone else's treasure. Aaron Murphy reports. Walking down the stairs into Sam Hatfield's Fall River basement, it's clear that it's not just another room in her house. It's where she runs her clothing company, Shotgun Vintage. Based online and on Instagram, the logo, featuring orange flames coming out of a black Monte Carlo, says that it is not your typical fashion company. I was really inspired by cars. So it's like when you're going for a ride and you call Shotgun because you want the front seat. Mm-hmm. There's only one shotgun. Yeah. That was the inspo. Her basement is the laboratory of an artist at work. Sewing machines mounted on tables. Racks are filled with clothing. There's a corner dedicated to photo shoots. On the wall, there's a painting of her friendly Boston Terrier Ritz who never leaves her side. It's not like super clean, but I did clean before it came. Oh, it's all good. <laughs> it's always a disaster. Understandably so. 
considering the work she puts into each design. Hatfield finds old clothing and gives it her own flair. By cutting, cropping, and sewing multiple pieces of clothing together, she creates something new and unique. One of Hatfield's most interesting designs were her blanket hoodies. So this was like a tapestry blanket that I thrifted. And this was like an Adidas hoodie that was damaged and like probably wouldn't have sold just on its own. So I cut it up and match it with other stuff. She says being fashionable while environmentally friendly is important. That's what I'm kind of looking for when I go in the thrift stores, like damaged stuff, yeah. stuff that nobody's going to want. And that way it comes with me and gets to live again instead of going to the landfill. One person's trash becomes another's treasure. Maria Kennedy, a regular customer of Shotgun Vintage, backs that up. So she actually sewed three different sweatshirts together to make this like long crew neck. And then it has this cool like devil face on it with like her shotgun logo on it. So I love that piece. He's super special. Every piece is so different and she just keeps making different pieces all the time. So it's crazy. While scrolling through her website, the majority of her items are sold out. Hatfield hadn't touched a sewing machine before she created Shotgun in 2018. So I had like an old sewing machine that my mom had given me. Learned how to sew a straight line, started cropping t-shirts. It started taking off and then I started to like really like sewing. So I went to YouTube and taught myself. Hatfield left a full-time salary paying job to give all focus to her local environmentally friendly company. Shotgun Vintage is now heading into its fourth year in business. Aaron Murphy, The Signal, Halifax. Halifax wants candy too. There's been an uptick in businesses that import chips, sodas, and candies from all over the world. It's now easier than ever to satisfy your cravings for duck-flavored potato chips and fruity pebble cereal. Claire Henry reports. You know, roasted fish flavor, uh, you know, roasted garlic oyster. Inside the underground snack store in downtown Halifax, rows of gummies and sour candies line the walls. Everything is orderly, from the fridges full of imported soft drinks to the boxes of Captain Crunch and Dunkin' Donuts cereal. Traffic in the store is brisk. Rebecca Boudreau is shopping for Pokemon Oreos. She says she appreciates the nostalgia. You definitely oh, yeah. find candy from like the 90s that like doesn't exist anymore in like regular convenience stores. Kathleen Mosher is here to get stocking stuffers for Christmas. She says she likes to try new foods and gets them whenever she can. Mainly when I travel, yeah, which right now isn't very often. It's the third underground snack store to open in Atlantic Canada during the pandemic. Evan Humber is the owner. He says it all started in 2019 as an Instagram account. It, it just took off, you know, really bigger than I ever imagined it would. Humber says social media is still vital to drawing customers to the brick and mortar stores and to their online store. Honestly, I would say 30 to 40 percent, maybe even 50, <laughs> honestly, um, or higher. But it's a lot of people come here from seeing us on Instagram or TikTok. Right in the middle of the pandemic, Humber noticed a surge in rare snack related TikTok content. Some snacks, like sour, slime liquor candy and gushing fruit jellies, were going viral. He got on board. Again, you know, you almost had to be on it, like, every single day at all times to see what's trending and, you know, making sure, you know, you're getting the product, you know, maybe before it sells out sort of thing. Now, Humber says he will be hiring a content creator to monitor snack trends and make videos for social media. A couple blocks away, the long-standing Freak Lunchbox candy store has also taken to TikTok 
with videos of sugary cereals, imported sodas, and viral snacks. Their TikTok account has over a million likes. And on a residential street in central Halifax, Colin White sells carrot cake flavored Oreos and peach jasmine Fanta. Munchies was a typical corner store when White took over in 2020. He's since given it a candy-coated rebrand. His windows now read rare snacks and exotic sodas. Munchies also has an online store and an Instagram page. So we're going to be expanding our locations to uh, outside of Halifax, still within Nova Scotia, Bedford. Paul McKinnon is the CEO of the Downtown Halifax Business Commission. We're, we're maybe becoming a bit of, uh, of Candy Central uh, here in downtown Halifax. He's noticed a handful of new treat stores popping up during the pandemic. You know, it's kind of a, a specialty indulgence, and, and, and those kinds of things actually were, were doing very well during the pandemic. Again, people were stuck at home. They were looking to treat themselves to, to something sweet or whatever. Humber says that snacks can also take some people back in time. You know, they can relate to that back, you know, when they were, you know, three feet tall in elementary school. For The Signal, I'm Claire Henry. And that's it for this episode of The Signal. From the audio workshop at the University of King's College, I'm Isabel Buckmaster. And I'm Josefa Cameron. A special thanks to technical director Mark Pinio. Our producer today was Joe Thompson. Josefa Cameron was the associate producer. The social media producer was Marianne McClarty. Bill's producer was Claire Henry, and the editor was Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening.